Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with two experts about vulnerable communities. I will let them introduce themselves to you, but the title of the book is Vulnerable Communities, Research, Policy, and Practice in Small Cities. Now for your introduction. Uh, My name is Jim Connolly. Uh, I'm the director of the Center for Middletown Studies at Ball State University. I'm Dagny Falk. I'm the Director of Research in the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. Welcome to the podcast. I wonder if you could begin this interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this topic. Should I go first, Dagny? Yeah, you should always go first. Let's just (laughs) do it that way. Okay, that'll keep it smooth. Um, So I'm a historian by training, a historian of American cities. Uh, And so my research through most of my career has been focused on different aspects of American urban experience. One of those aspects is the the history of smaller cities. Uh, And so I've I've worked on that in a variety of ways, organized conferences, uh, various kinds of publications as well. Uh, And that's been one of my core research uh, focuses over the last decade or so particularly. And I became interested in small cities because of Jim basically participating in a conference that he organized uh, probably a decade ago now. And um, and my, my, most of my work is in state and local public finance. And the chapter that I do in this book is on that topic. But um, um, I've, I've, um, I do some other work related to small cities and rural areas also more recently. Now, the term vulnerable communities. Can you describe to us what is a vulnerable community? In my mind, uh, the the concept of a vulnerable community, and I, I guess I should pause for a moment and credit uh, Emily Warnell, who is our colleague and collaborator, who is actually the person who uh, proposed that term. Uh, and it became the theme of a conference that we organized in 2018. And out of that conference came this book, which is a collection of papers that have been revised since the conference, but were originally presented at the conference. And so the idea of of vulnerable communities is, for our purposes, smaller places 
that have uh, economic difficulties typically uh, and that are still struggling in the, the 2020s, still facing specific sets of challenges. And we think there's a class of, of cities, smaller cities in the United States that are in this position, both because they're, they have limited political clout, uh, but they also have a specific set or a common set of economic challenges uh, that they face that are partly a result of their size. Yeah, and the economic challenges are often related to dramatic decreases in manufacturing employment and, and population loss that's, that's associated with that. And um, many of these communities tend to be in what's called the Rust Belt, um, which spans the Northeast through um, the Midwest, east of the Mississippi or so. Um, but there are also you know, other places like um, Bessemer, Alabama is one of the communities that um, is examined in this book. Now, when you're looking at location, does place matter in regards to the economic policies? Yeah, a lot. I mean, the you know, part of what we're trying to do with the book is not only talk about the reasons why these communities are struggling, but also to think about approaches that can be taken to address some of these difficulties. Uh, and when you're thinking about the approaches, uh, it, that place really matters, right? Sort of the, the thing you have to do initially is to figure out based on where you are, what kind of opportunities, what kinds of paths forward are available to you. So if you're located within hailing distance of a metropolitan center, then there's an opportunity to become a suburb, a bedroom community. Uh, if you're located near uh, particular natural amenities, mountains, lakes, beaches, things like that, then there are obviously opportunities tied to, to those assets. In other cases, you know, and this is true for a lot of the cities in the middle of the country, you have fewer of those kinds of, of resources. So you have to think carefully about where you're located. Uh, some cities that have, some smaller cities that have successfully moved ahead economically uh, are beneficiaries of what some scholars have called place luck. Uh, which is a, an opportunity, an opportunity that's available to them because of where they're located. So, so place certainly matters in that sense. And and then one of the the topics that is discussed in one of the chapters of this book is whether a um, community is classified as part of a metropolitan area or not, or goes back and forth between metro and non-metro area depending on changes in the federal classification. That determines the type of funding and the programs that they're available um, to, to apply for funding um, and reimbursement rates for things like community development block grants, depending on, you know, how they're classified. Um, Medicaid reimbursements, things like that as well. Yes, yes. Population growth. Give us the example of Harrisburg, Virginia, and what happened with that community. So that is the... The first chapter in our book, it's a, it's a chapter by Henry Way from James Madison University. Uh, and he talks about Harrisonburg as a place that's done relatively well. In fact, if you survey the communities that are represented in, in this book, it's probably doing the best in, in, in economic terms. Uh, and he talks about the ways in which the the, the city worked with the university, James Madison, which is located there. Um, it was also the, the recipient of a significant influx of immigrants who've, who've helped with uh, and contributed to population growth. Uh, and it's also worked very hard to redevelop its downtown. And 
all of these things are, are positives. All these things are resources that the city has been able to use uh, to grow uh, and to do relatively well economically as a result. Despite that fact, because it's a smaller place, it's, a, it's not a large city, it, um, it struggles with or has to deal with what, what Henry calls in-betweenness, right? It's, it's got some attributes of a big city, but it's, it's not a big city. Uh, and it has some things that are distinctive in its smallness. Um, and the, the, Henry is a, is, a, is a planner. And what he really focuses on is the ways in which the influx of immigrants, the, the growth of the university and the development of the downtown have not been coordinated. And that is in some ways limited the city's growth and that there are opportunities for, for more and better growth uh, with greater coordination in those areas. Good job. <laughs> I don't have anything to add on that. You know, what happens when an industry leaves a small town and that small town is left without jobs? The example you gave in the book was Alabama. Tell us about that area. Uh, Bessemer, uh, Alabama, is is featured in one of the chapters by Bill Holt uh, at Birmingham Southern College. And uh, he talks about the history of that city, uh, as well as the more recent redevelopment efforts. And it's a city that's been in the news lately. Uh, there has been a union drive at the recently opened Amazon distribution center there that, that's captured a lot of national attention, is still ongoing. Um, the, the, the conflict is still there. Um, and what Bill really does is, is show us how, first of all, the loss of uh, industry, particularly the steel industry in the case of Bessemer, um, has really decimated the community. Uh, it's also a majority black community, uh, which gives it another set of complicated issues and challenges facing the community. There's, you know, there's a history of discrimination and segregation, and the city suffers uh, from the fact that, that it's, um, it, it's a, a majority minority community. Uh, as well. And it's been working very hard and, and it's really applied many of the different things in the economic redevelopment playbook, um, you know, luring stores, trying to redevelop certain parts of downtown. Um, it's, it's really struggled to do that. Um, and it is perhaps making some headway landing not only the Amazon distribution center, but several others as well. Uh, but the conflicts you see between Amazon's workers and the company that are, that are in the national news and have been lately, um, really show the difficulty of reviving a place like that that faces the twin challenges of industrial job loss and um, the legacies of racial discrimination. Now, when we look at small cities, we see that they are really uh, dependent on federal programs such as SNAP, Social Security, et cetera. Right. So, I mean, when those programs are not available and people leave, what what type of situation would that bring about? That too is addressed in, in one of the chapters in our book, a uh, book, uh, chapter by Alan Mollick, where he really emphasizes the role that what he calls uh, transfer payments uh, are sustain a lot of these places that would otherwise be struggling. So a city like Johnstown, Pennsylvania is highly dependent on distributions um, through, um, through SNAP, uh, through um, Medicaid and Medicare payments uh, that sustain the hospital there, uh, which is one of the major employers. Uh, other cities uh, rely heavily on public universities that have student bodies that receive large amounts of, of federal assistance through loan programs. Um, and, and so they're, they're really 
kept afloat by these these urban transfer payments um, and might not be sustainable otherwise, don't seem to be sustainable otherwise. And so we need to think carefully about how we can, you know, perhaps wean some of these communities off of that dependence uh, and push them towards becoming more economically sustainable. As Alan points out, there's a lot of these people and we, you know, we can just let these cities wither, uh, but um, that creates all kinds of other issues about what happens to the, the millions of people who live in these kinds of places. So you, you talked about bringing in a um, place for people to work. That's one way to help the population. What are some other ways that help cities grow? Well, bringing in work is an interesting topic. One of our contributions is uh, from our colleague, Mike Hicks, uh, and he talks about the pros and cons of that. And I'm going to let Dagny talk about that uh, because I think she has more to say. Yeah. And um Traditionally, in economic development, the focus has been on attracting firms but, and, and the jobs that are associated with that, with that and the multiplier effects that are associated with that. In Mike's work, he shows that these multiplier effects of attracting large firms have decreased over time um, and that there's an asymmetry in that the um, economic um, impact of losing a firm is much greater in terms of the overall employment loss than the economic impact of, of um, gaining a new plant um, in a location. Um, so that um, begs the question of, um, you know, maybe we should be thinking a little differently about economic development, that it's not just attracting um, um, a new manufacturing plant. And the, the focus has shifted a bit in um, economic development to focus on quality of place um, and, and making places um, attractive so that people want to live there so that you're not just focusing on attracting employees but you're, um, employ and employment opportunities, but you're also um, focusing on attracting um, households. And yeah. in this day and age, and we don't cover this in the book, but with people being able to to um, work remotely, there's a lot more opportunity um, for people to live, you know, outside of urban areas um, and, and work, you know, wherever. Um. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would add to that is that that a number of the chapters in the book talk about in various ways the, the necessity of developing communities' civic capacity. Um, Colleen DeWicke is one of our contributors uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston, and they, they run a program in New England that attempts to develop civic capacity, the ability of communities to act in, in cohesive ways, coordinated ways to pursue economic redevelopment. Um, and that's ongoing, but it's showing real signs of being beneficial that before you even worry about trying to bring in a company, um, that you have to have communities that are functioning well in a civic sense. Um, and, and her research shows uh, how that can be a really effective way to position communities to capitalize on the opportunities that they have. Now, in your book, you talk about Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. What are some of the problems that are going on there? So yeah, th there's a chapter by Hannah Leibovitz uh, from uh, U, U Texas Arlington uh, about Cleveland. What she really looks at is the suburbs immediately surrounding Cleveland. Um, and these are a set of inner ring communities where she analyzes their uh, their master plans, their their uh, core planning documents to sort of figure out what are they doing? How are they thinking about themselves as communities? How, how do they define themselves as communities? 
And what's interesting is she finds that they, they, they really think of themselves as independent from uh, Cleveland uh, in a way that you wouldn't expect of suburbs. You know, sort of the typical expectation is that's one of the advantages that a suburban location would have, even a once industrial uh, community near a, near a larger city would have is that they could become satellites of the, the major city. But in, in the case of Cleveland, where the core city isn't doing all that well economically, these cities are striving to distinguish themselves uh, from the central city and to define themselves uh, as independent places, as small cities, even though um, they are located you know, immediately adjacent to a major metropolitan center. Now, another question that your, your book talks about is uh, property taxes. When they are reduced because of population laws, what, what happens in that environment? Yeah, this, this is the chapter that I co-authored along with um, Chip Taylor and um, Pam Shaw, where we look at the impact of recently imposed property tax rate caps in Indiana and how that affects the functioning of um, small cities within the state. And we look at how um, or the two possibilities that local governments have um, for adjusting um, to these revenue losses are either um, decreasing their budgets and associated employment or increasing revenue from some other source, which in Indiana, that those sources are very limited. It's either a local option income tax or annexation in order to increase the property tax base. And we find that um, this revenue loss from property tax caps has had a variable effect and that some small cities have been affected dramatically, losing as much as 30% of their property tax revenues and other um, cities, it's been much lower, like around 3%. Um, and then that um, local governments, municipalities have um, adjusted by decreasing their budgets and decreasing employment. And the type of employment is tends to be in um, um, parks and recreation and um, highway, um, um, police and fire, the, the public safety services tend to be more protected. Um, and then um, for the short time period that we looked at, we found that up to that time, local municipalities had not increased their local option income tax rates or um, engaged in noticeable annexation, although there, since then, um, there have been increases in local option income tax rates. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, there were places that were doing really well. And Lawrence, Massachusetts had a decline in population, but they are turning things around. Tell us about that chapter. 
that that's uh, discussed in the chapter by Colleen DeWicke about building civic capacity in these communities. And so Lawrence is an example of a place where they're making progress uh, and that there is evidence that that turnaround that's that's becoming visible is at least in part made possible by the fact that they've brought together stakeholders from across the community, representatives of various uh, neighborhoods, organizations, social groups, uh, as well as institutions, um, and, and, and that they've kind of coordinated amongst each other and developed a level of trust with each other uh, that's enabling the city to start to make progress. And so this is where we, we try to get into in, in the book. We're not, this is not a book that's sort of a got full policy prescriptions or anything like that. But what we try to do is to, is to present ways in which people who are interested in the fate of these kinds of communities uh, can, can think strategically. Uh, and, and, and so we're pushing people away from the idea that you want to go out and chase smokestacks, recruit new businesses to bring, bring people in because as, Dagny was saying, Mike Hicks's work really shows that that's a long-term loser. Instead, you want to develop the, the civic capacity, the amenities, um, the attractiveness uh, of these communities. In a place like Lawrence, you're starting to see some of that happen. Um, so there are sort of green shoots in, in these kinds of places um, that point us towards uh, placemaking, uh, as Dagny mentioned a moment ago, uh, towards building uh, civic capacity, uh, and towards thinking creatively about how to develop the community rather than simply uh, thinking about how to attract employers. Another really interesting thing in your book was about the population diversity and how things were changing very rapidly for the areas of Fargo, North Dakota and right. Sioux Falls. Tell us about that story. I found that to be really interesting. Uh, so... One of the strategies, in addition to the things I was just talking about a moment ago, one of the strategies that a number of communities have begun to adopt is to recruit refugees uh, or to, to attract immigrants to settle in these communities. There's even national discussions about creating federal incentives that would encourage immigrants and refugees to move into the heartland, into this more um, uh, struggling parts of, of the country, the Midwest, the Rust Belt, uh, particularly. Um, and so Jen Erickson, who is our colleague here at Ball State, uh, has done a much, a lot of ethnographic research about um, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, amongst other places. Uh, and what they're finding is that these, that this is an example of a community that has begun to, uh, uh, not begun to, but has been in the business of bringing in refugees as one of the things that contributes to their growth. There's other things that really benefit cities in Dakotas, particularly um, the natural gas boom in, in that area. But one of the strategies they've adopted is attracting refugees. And what Jen shows is that simply wanting to bring refugees in is not the same thing as actually bringing them in, settling them, integrating them into the community and receiving the economic benefits that they bring. Um, and so she sort of lays out policies for different um, or ideas and, and approaches for, for uh, different parts of local government. So for instance, you want to have um, police and other public officials who are familiar with the, uh, the, the language and culture of the newcomers, particularly the culture of, of the newcomers. You want to find ways to make these people fit into the community uh, in, in a way that, again, makes these, makes these communities cohesive and in a position to capitalize on the opportunities. Uh, that they have. And so refugee attraction is a key strategy, but it's also one that comes with not just bring them in, but also 
help them adjust, help them integrate into the community. Now, this was dealt with in one of your chapters about drawing younger people into smaller cities. Uh, what what's going on with the research there? Um, I mean, there's a there's a broader and Dagny, you can weigh in here if you have other things to add. But there's a broader uh, argument, and this is across several of of, of the chapters that you want to bring in, you want to attract people. You want to retain the people that you have and that you should think in people first terms about how to redevelop these communities rather than think about chasing businesses and, and trying to land new employers. So the community we live in now recently is, is completing a, a project that will employ uh, over 300 workers in, I think it's a canning operation. Um, and, and that's great for 300 workers, but this is a community we're talking about that once employed 3000 workers in a factory. So bringing in 300 new workers is a good thing, but it doesn't solve the problem or compensate for the loss of 3,000 jobs. Um, and so simply pursuing manufacturing opportunities isn't enough. You want to bring in other people, often younger people, college-educated people, into these communities, um, and, you, and you, you want to design them in ways that are attractive to those kinds of groups. Again, this is about encouraging population growth um, in, in these places. You know, one of the issues is brain drain and that younger people tend, tend to leave communities for, especially after they've gone to college, in order to, to um, pursue other um, career opportunities. So um, having a place, quality of place so that younger people want to live in smaller cities and rural areas is important. And, and that feeds into um, immigrants, too. I mean, the, um, the immigrants can be have low levels of education, but a lot of immigrants also have very high levels of education, you know, and work in um, the sciences or medical professions and um, being able to attract um, highly educated immigrants, you know, is, is an economic development strategy for small cities and rural areas. One nugget that I found in your book that I thought was really interesting was the election of 2020. It gave us more information, especially about population change and how things have changed in terms of poverty in the suburban areas. Tell us more about that. Uh, so one of the things that both the 2016 and the 2020 elections did was focus attention on the kinds of places that we're writing about in this book. Uh, it's um, and, and there's connections that are being made between the dissatisfactions we're seeing in um, the Midwest, in, in, in parts of the American South uh, that, have, that were expressed, frankly, through support for Donald Trump, um, that where people connect those kinds of, that kind of discontent and the political difficulties it's creating in the country uh, and the drift away from democracy that we're seeing uh, and the economic condition of these places. Uh, and so recent elections have really trained our attention uh, on these issues as, as it's more than just about economic performance. Ultimately, it's also about uh, our civic health as, as, a, as a nation and our civic health uh, in specific communities. Um, and so there are other scholars um, who are particularly focused on, not just in the United States even, but also other communities in similar positions around the world, um, you know, their economic health is closely tied to uh, the, the civic condition of these societies, including our society. What is the overall message you would like to leave your reader with after they read this book? Uh, I have a couple of things, but Dagny, do you want to 
weigh in on what you might want to say are the big takeaways? Well, one is that we want to bring a focus to smaller cities and vulnerable communities in general and um, some of the problems and policies that have been implemented to try and improve these to try and improve these places um, and practical suggestions also. So we want to provide some information and then maybe some strategies um, that that um, policymakers can um, think about and perhaps implement. Right, and push beyond the let's get more businesses, let's land more businesses uh, for, for our towns. There's really kind of, you know, we don't, as I said, we're not a book that's filled with specific policy prescriptions because there's no one size fits all model for these places. You know, you have a Southern community like Bessemer, right. Alabama is a lot different from an inner ring suburb in outside of Cleveland, Ohio, or a small city in Indiana or other, other kinds of similar places. So we want to sort of get people to think in, in at least two ways about the challenges that these communities face and, and how, how these can be addressed. One of these is to think about the internal dynamics of, uh, of these places. They're, they're smaller, they're not metropolitan centers, but they're still cities. So they still have diversity, they still have conflicts, they still have tensions and, and specific histories around some of these tensions. Um, and so we want uh, the people who are interested in reviving these places to, to go into the process aware of that and looking for that. We have a nice uh, epilogue to the book uh, by Greg Goodnight, who's the, the former mayor of Kokomo, Indiana, who's had great success in, in uh, working towards redeveloping that city. Um, and he describes all the conflicts, the tensions when he, you know, he, he knew he was doing the right thing in terms of what policymakers or policy uh, scholars would recommend, but it still created all kinds of friction and tension. And he, and he lays that out really nicely and gives us an appreciation of the fact that there, there are these kinds of political divisions and conflicts that are going to arise as you pursue these redevelopment policies. And you can't just sort of go in and assume that these small cities are, because they're small, cohesive. Um, and, and can act on policy prescriptions in, in a quick and, and straightforward manner. And the other thing we really want people to be aware of is that there are real structural disadvantages uh, at the state and national level for, for smaller cities. Cities in the United States are generally weaker than they are in many other countries. Uh, they are creations of state governments. They're given charters by state governments. So the states can, state governments can dictate how they behave. They can limit whether or not they can, you know, change the local minimum wage. They, they can get into, you know, the gender politics that are so intense right now and restrict the ability of cities to accommodate people from, uh, you know, with different kinds of characteristics. Yeah, uh, they can impose property tax caps that dramatically affect right. yeah, they can limit the ability of you know, cities without to really much input. Go ahead. Right. Sorry. Yeah, they can limit, as Dagny was saying, they can limit the ability of cities to raise money or to annex or not annex uh, of this. Um, and, and then on top of that, of course, small cities are um, less powerful economically than big cities, just there's less going on, they're smaller. Um, so that combination of governmental restrictions, policy restrictions, um, political restrictions, uh, and uh, economic, uh, you know, lesser economic capacity than you see in big cities um, has made these communities particularly vulnerable. So as people start to think about what to do about it, we want them to think, all right, what's going on inside these places? And what are the larger structural challenges that they face? And what can we do perhaps in, in these broader terms? Can we adjust state policies? Can we adjust federal policies to put these cities in a better position? So it's really those two things I would say are the big takeaways. 
Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell me what's the next projects you will be working on? Um, well, you know, one of the things that happened with this book is that we did most of the work before COVID hit. Uh, and so I'm interested in finding out, you know, the next chapter in terms of the, the impact of the pandemic and all of the, 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 the restrictions and permutations Dagny talked earlier about the, um, the, the uh, work from home, the shift to work from home and remote work. Uh, what's that going to do for these places? Um, you know, there are cities right now that are working very hard in this part of the country to recruit Yes, uh, remote uh, workers. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, they're paying so, money. Yeah, how's that going to work out? Um, yeah. And you know, how does that perhaps change uh, these approaches? So that's one thing I'm interested in. There's, there's, there's other topics. I think in, in general, these smaller communities have not received as much research as metropolitan places have, and so we want to promote that. And we're just finishing a um, a study of rural Indiana. Um, that we will be published the next few weeks where we look at different aspects of the um, rural, rural, rural areas, housing, um, employment, the manufacturing sector, it's like a dozen different topics. Um, so that part of this, that's one of the results of this work is that it spurred us to do some additional work on smaller Stop, places. Well, Sorry. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to say? Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thanks for having us. Uh, the yeah. book is published by, by Cornell University Press, so you can find it online and, and uh, through various bookstores. So we'd encourage you to have a look. Yeah. And the title again is Vulnerable Communities. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us.